Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next generation of professional development in higher education. I am Dr. Laura DeVoe and I am your host. Thank you for being here. It is Wednesday, March the 1st, and uh, happy Mandalorian Day for all those who celebrate. Uh, the Mandalorian comes back today and we also have our uh, monthly episode of the think tank i am joined by beth graham petro and Corey davis who are returning to the show and uh beth is trying out the new web browser functionality how's that going for you beth i'd say just okay (laughs) (laughs) oh oh. and the developers will be sad okay so today i want to say hi to Corey. want to say hi to beth hey beth how are you doing good how are you doing I'm doing okay. Are you on spring break next week or what's uh what's yes. what's the Simmons schedule? You go on spring break next week, okay? Spring break is next week. And not a moment too soon. <laughs> right? Are you look are you excited for spring break? What is the spring break vibe on your campus? The vibe is that I believe tomorrow and Friday are going to be very quiet and slow because people are leaving as soon as they can. I think people are ready for a break. Okay. We like that. And then, uh, Corey, how are things up at Champlain? How are you doing up there? Where are you? I think you kind of fell off the stage. We're going to put you back up on the stage. Here you go. He's up at Champlain. I don't think they have... uh, they have their spring break. Is it is it two weeks, Corey? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, end of next week. Um, and also, like, school vacation week is a very big thing here in Vermont, both for, like, our own schools and where so many folks from out of state come to ski. Oh, yes. People are like, oh, last week was Connecticut, Mass, and New York, or, or some iteration of that. Or like, All right, cool. Just stay away from the mountains for two weekends in a row. So that's a big thing on everyone's minds. And so this week is New Hampshire, right? Isn't this New Hampshire spring vacation week? I think this is New Hampshire and Vermont. I think last week might have been Mass and New York and maybe Connecticut. Okay. okay. But every, it's on everyone knows and I'm feeling behind. Okay. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's you know, Beth went on a, a wonderful vacation for school vacation week and, uh, you know, I was jealous. I was looking at her photos on Instagram. We did not go anywhere. My daughter was eyeball deep in robotics all week and uh, would come home with updates on how many drill bits she broke. And so that was that was exciting. So that's what that was happening in the DeVoe household. So welcome, everybody. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And every month we do have our think tank episode. And, uh, you know, what we want to try to do when we put this show together is talk about what are some of the current issues that are facing higher ed. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on right now. And so I said to Corey and Beth, we're going to really concentrate on uh, a few big areas. We're going to start with some hot takes on uh, where things stand with uh, U.S. News and World Reports. Uh, We found out this week that Colorado College uh, is now dropping out of the U.S. News undergraduate rankings. We'd heard earlier this year Uh, earlier this academic year. When I say this year, for new people listening, I'm always talking about the academic year. I always kind of, you know, it it gets confusing, so I apologize, but it's hardwired in me that, you know, when I refer to this. But um, we've we've been hearing all academic year about uh, law schools dropping out of U.S. news uh, and some medical schools dropping out of the rankings. 
this is really one of the first pushes for undergraduate schools. Um, Colorado College said this past Monday of this week, it will no longer participate in U.S. News & World Report's undergraduate rankings, becoming the second institution to drop them in recent weeks over equity concerns. Um, this is coming to us from Higher Ed Dive. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it is going to matter. It is going to matter about uh, institutions kind of taking a step out um, Reed College hasn't been part of it for quite some time. The former president of Reed has actually written a book all about uh, school rankings and why it's BS and why it really just kind of uh, kind of uh, kind of heightens issues around equity um, and uh, inequality in terms of how students see these issues. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Is there any opportunity here? What you know, I want to know your thoughts on which institutions do you think, if they dropped out, if they dropped out, then what's your hot take? What is going to take an institution to drop out of U.S. News and World Report where the undergraduate rankings just start not mattering anymore? What is the what is the first domino in this? So, uh, Corey or Beth, whoever wants to start. Um, oh, go for it, Beth. The Ivies. If the Ivies drop out of this, it's over. Like, the, yeah, this, that's that would be the first group. Any any of the Ivies or the like equivalents, like a Stanford, a UVA, any of those that are the highly competitive, the, the very sought after name schools. If they drop, mm -hmm. what's the point anymore? Because aren't the MIT is another? Yeah. Hasn't Princeton been number one for like a decade? Yeah, or like did. Princeton and Yale fight over yeah, number one? They, they fight. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they fight. So I think if they go, yeah, then when the top three people, when the top three institutions drop out, then it's going to matter, I think. But um, and and just for clarification, the first school to drop out was RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, and and that's interesting. But they're a niche school. I mean, they're a great school when it comes to art and design, but that is not a place where, unless you're really looking for that kind of program, you're not paying attention. And their rationale behind it was that this doesn't really help us. Like we we want to compete against and differentiate ourselves against other art schools, but we we can do that in other ways. We don't need U.S. News to do that for us. Um, Corey, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with Beth about the, the Ivies being the, the kind of linchpin on this? If they jump out, the rest will reconsider? Definitely. You know, I think that like if there was a critical mass of Ivy League schools, people would look to them for guidance and, you know, perceived success. Whether that success would come or not, you know, in more monies and more students would probably take a number of years to figure out. Um, I imagine, too, you know, it'd probably take just just like Beth had mentioned with UVA, probably some of the more renowned, academically rigorous, large public institutions, yeah, um, yeah. a UCLA, a Michigan, a Georgia, and then the dominoes would fall as well. Um, I actually think, jumping off of that, Corey, I think if yeah. the UC system jumps off, then you're done. Because if, yeah, I, I, while I agree that it's going to take, like, the, I think what'll happen if the Ivies say, no, no, not we're not doing this anymore. We're doing things differently. Knowing the Ivies, they'll probably create their own ranking system in and amongst themselves. Um, right. Because that's the kind of crap that they pull. Um, but I think that if the University of California state system says, 
you know, not only are we going to go test optional, um, or I think they're now tests, they're not even taking tests anymore. I got to, I got to check, check my notes, check myself on this. But if they actually came in and said, nah, you know what, this isn't that we're, we don't subscribe to this. We're out. Um, I think that would do a lot, um, as far as that's concerned. Another another two things are coming to my mind, you know, in thinking about like um, outright service academies and your like maritime academies. I don't I assume they're ranked, but I don't know how that all fits in. So I'm curious about those folks. And I wonder in and amongst themselves again. I think that it's more Mm -hmm. if you're somebody who's looking at a service academy, you know, again, very niche. Yeah, it it is really about what you're looking for. I think it's really interesting for something completely unrelated to this. I interviewed someone who heads up the one of the biggest uh, union organizations related to transportation. And he was talking about the importance of some of these committees uh, or some of these organizations, specifically like Mass Maritime and the Coast Guard Academy and students who come out of those programs come out with a lot. And, And there's there's a new ranking here. I see Sheila in the audience. Hey, Shigs, come on up if you want. Um, and, uh, you know, the the idea around um, the, the there's a new ranking and that's upward mobility that U.S. News is throwing out there. And that you see a lot of schools kind of saying, oh, we may not be here, but we are upward mobility. So I wonder if they're muddying the waters on the rankings a little bit so that they can say, oh, we are doing different types of rankings and that might hold on to people. So I think it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. I would like to see more state institutions say, nope, we're not going to subscribe to this anymore and see if that pushes it. So I think large uh, state institutions, places that have a national reputation and the IVs, if they start to jump out of the U.S. news rankings, we're going to see some things happen. Laura, Laura, it also it also makes me think of you know, I, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but you know, is something or a conversation about accreditation mm-hmm. next? Is that yeah. a bigger thing? You know, in ten years, are we going to be talking about that? You know, I, I think you know, so long as people agree to that and aspire to that, it gives it a lot of power um, and influence. I wonder if that could be the next thing in ten years. You know, because decades ago, like rankings were really important and people still perceive that to be important. And now we're seeing a shift. I wonder if that might change things for the accrediting folks around the country. I, I think that um, accreditation will be a thing that we are going to know more about from a layman's terms, what that actually means. If an institution has proper accreditation, I think there's going to be more scrutiny to that. As I've been saying for quite some time, higher education is the only field that accredits itself. Okay. So if you actually took a look at the airline uh, industry, if you found out that the only people who were making decisions on whether or not an airline was safe to fly on time to fly were other airlines, you would not fly. Okay. So the fact that we are accrediting ourselves is, is I think a risk moving forward. And uh, we may want to look at that long term, but that's going to be a big shift in how we operate as a as an industry of higher ed. It will only take some, you know, uh, coming in from the federal government and some real scrutiny there. Um, And I don't know uh, where we're at, especially when we've been walking around with the Higher Education Reauthorization Act that's been out of date for, oh, way too long. Okay, so uh, let's move our attention to SCOTUS. 
they had the folks from the Biden administration come in yesterday uh, to talk about student loan relief um, and uh, came up pretty partisan in terms of the questions and that sort of thing. We're not going to do a deep dive into this, but thoughts on, uh, you know, what are you hearing in terms of chatter around this? And then also, I think an important thing to think about is how does this affect uh, how institutions are looking at discount rates and that sort of thing, um, especially when people are going to graduate and they're going to still have that high rate of debt? And um, I, I just I, I don't know. I'm I'm looking at this and saying, you know, there's a lot of people who are putting a lot of uh, kind of hope and prayer that this is going to come through. Um, and I just don't feel that SCOTUS is going to back this up and we're going to be in a situation where it's going to have to go back to Congress um, to actually make something happen. And, and right now they're not there. Uh, so political implications, thoughts on this. We'll start with Corey and then go to Beth. I heard the other day on the radio, um, and I listened to NPR in Vermont for for all that's worth. So take it with all the stereotype you can muster. Um, one of the, I think, one of the just exact. I don't, I don't have a Subaru. Um, one of the, I know my fiance does. Um, one of the pieces I heard, I think, Justice Gorsuch asking about was fairness, and that's really stuck with me because I can't imagine a group of nine individuals really being able to weigh and measure and balance fairness for so many college students current and and former in the US um, and the, the you know the privileges that many of those justices have had and then be able to you know step back to their own colleges college experiences where costs were so much less they themselves as justices are now in you know job security for the rest of their lives twenty thousand dollars even ten thousand dollars might not matter as much to them. And I'm really concerned, worried about this idea of fairness and being able to balance that for so many other borrowers around the yep. country. Yep. And and it's, um, it's an out of date um, ideology in terms of, oh, well, I picked myself up and I was able to work part time and blah, blah, blah. And it just, it doesn't work. I mean, the math doesn't, the math doesn't math. And so, um, the other big thing that we always have to stress with this is how many students or for student loan borrowers are out there who have never earned a degree and they are stuck um, because they can't re-enroll because they have a student loan debt that they have to pay off. Um, and I'm of the mindset that if we were able to wipe this clean, there are people who are maybe five, $6,000 away because they are on some kind of hold that could then say, great, now I can start back up. I can finish this degree and it will change their lives. But, you know, that's not the argument we're hearing. We're constantly hearing about the people who made the choice. And there is a argument out there of people who, oh, you took basket weaving. Well, first of all, unless you went to RISD, you didn't play, take any basket weaving. And that's actually, uh, you know what, they're probably doing quite well on Etsy selling those damn baskets. So, um, Beth, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I agree with what Corey had to say. I also, two things come to mind for me. One is I was reading a little bit about sort of what the actual argument is that's being made in this case. And it just feels very much like if you're reading it and I'm not an attorney, but like I read it and I was like, mm, based on the merits here, it feels like there aren't any merits. Like there's no injury mm -hmm. there. I don't even think these people have standing to bring this, but clearly someone did because it made it to the Supreme court. 
And it's one of those things where I look at it and I'm like, oh, in a, in a just society, this would be obvious and it, but it won't be because the court is a mess and Congress is a mess. Mm -hmm. The other thing kind of relating to what Corey said is like, we as a country, there is a narrative that the, the conservative folks in our country push very effectively that people are just looking for a handout, which I think is a disgusting narrative because um, gross, like, no, people are not just looking for a handout. Um, And there's so much information that can debunk all of that for you if you are interested in learning and if you're interested in hearing it. Um, But a lot of people are not. And it's very sad and very like, I can't think of the word right now, but like, it just, it, it does not feel good to know that, what you said, Laura, like this could be transformative for so mm-hmm. many people who yep. really just need a clean slate to get over a hump to like be able to restart a degree or get out of a hole that then they could actually be participating in the economy in ways that are blocked to them right now financially. Yep. yep. Um, we can do this. Like we, we could do, do hard this. things. <laughs> Much like we, but like it's one of those things where like our country sorry, I'm about to sound like a nut, but like <laughs> it's one of many things where our country wrings its little hands and is like, what are we gonna do? We can't possibly. It's like, no, you could. We yeah, could, could do this. Mm-hmm. And instead of just giving like the whole like, what do we do about unhoused people? Well, you build housing and you yeah, give right. it to them, which I know yeah. is not I'm not an urban planner either, but like the fact is that the solution to a lot of problems like this is literally to give people money. Mm-hmm. Like it's what we bail saw funds what happened. Do. We saw happen when yeah. people started getting money for their children in well, terms of give the people commitment. money. Yeah. Exactly. But our country is like, no, no, no. Oh no, no we can't possibly, no. No. we need to come up with some convoluted bullshit program where like, you know, people have to, we have to means test it and people have to qualify because heaven, heaven forbid someone get a handout. Heaven forbid mm-hmm. someone who doesn't need it gets it. And it's just yep. like, and often the cost of means testing these things is higher than just giving people money. Yep. So I feel very strongly both that this should be easy. This should be so simple and so obvious. And yet it's not going to happen because we have a bunch of people in charge, especially in the court who are like, no, no, no bootstraps, no handouts. Right, right, right. And that's really sad. Well, and I think it's it's interesting. And and uh, I don't know if you saw it in the news this morning, and then a completely unrelated, but sort of sort of related reality. Eli Lilly has announced that they are capping insulin at $35, regardless of who you are, regardless. Okay. Now, I'm like, oh, look what happens when you actually cap it for a certain population. And now corporation, the big corporation says, you know what, we're going to cap it for everybody else. Imagine if some other kind of legislation came through, either through uh, the Higher Ed Reauthorization Act or something of that nature that focused on tuition discounting, focused on debt when students graduate, focus on how long, you know, we, if we actually pushed some legislation that made institutions actually say, mm, okay, this is going to make it harder for us to do business. We're going to have to change our model. That may actually be the case. That has to happen and relief has to happen. You literally have a generation of humanity right now that can't buy cars, can't buy houses, can't start lives because of the debt that they are in a cycle of paying off that never gets lower. 
and that's problematic and we yeah. have to do something about it hard yeah. stop hard yeah. stop Beth, building off of what you said, I think what, what's rankled me for some political perspectives, and I think this, you know, what we're talking about with student loans is a, a symptom of that is there are some folks in the U.S., including politicians, including our fellow citizens, who believe that um, any waste, fraud, or abuse to steal that line should be stamped out at the expense of 90% supporting or solving or helping a problem. And I just can't imagine what kind of world they live in where they would rather have so many people suffer than be able to help some folks. And yes, likely some monies would be wasted. Um, and, and that could be student loans. That could be, um, you know, relief checks that folks got during part of the pandemic that those individuals and, and folks with a kind of political perspective just boggle my mind. Yeah. Um, I think too, it's, it's part of the administration's recognition of that how costs of higher ed have just skyrocketed and maybe this is the tool or a tool they feel as though they can control without being able to attack the root. And so maybe regardless of if this fails or not, still going to try to, okay, we recognize the root of the problem. Now, what are we going to do? Len, Laura, your, your comment too, thinking about how does this play in with admissions and financial aid? I could imagine too, if this does go through, you know, what would stop a financial aid office from saying, Laura, you're a sophomore. We'd love to talk to you more about our Biden promise match yep. program. Yep. The feds yep. are going to give you this much. We are going to give you this much. Please, you know, come to us. Please transfer to our institution. Um, I could see some savvy people out there thinking this would be an opportunity. You know, we right. could we could cobble together another ten grand, another twenty grand to entice people to come to our school, and they'll spin it. You know, right. And it's also, I think, you know, we've done conversations in the past about tuition resets that are happening on some campuses. I think the more we actually start to see tuition resets, the more we start to think about putting some pressure on institutions about how to change the model. That's going to actually be the things that get people in the door um, and provide us with some opportunities to expand who we are enrolling. Um, speaking of that, I want to talk about some shows that are coming up over the rest of this month. Uh, we have three shows all focused on veterans uh, and veterans on campus. Speaking of communities that really can be uh, a way to not only jumpstart your enrollment, but also diversify your enrollment. And so we have they, we have shows, they're all on Fridays, they're on the 10th, the 24th, and the 31st of this month, um, all talking about uh, veterans. The first show, we'll talk about veteran-ready campuses, how to make sure your campus is veteran-ready, what that might look like. Uh, we are going to have a focus on also, we want to make sure we're going to talk about women veterans and what that means in terms of their uh, and their needs within that veteran ready environment. On the 24th, we're going to talk about mental health um, and uh, what that actually looks like for veterans. Um, there is a trope out there that says veterans are uh, a, a suck on your needs in terms of the uh, what you're providing on campus as far as mental health is concerned. And while yes, uh, veterans do need access to disability and accessibility services as well as mental health services. Um, it's it's a different type of service. It's not something that you should fear. And I've literally heard campuses say, well, do we want to open up that that can of worms? That is not the way to think about this. There are ways to make sure that you're doing this well. And also, long term, it helps your entire student body. And then on the 31st, we're going to talk about workforce and employment and why hiring veterans makes sense and how colleges and universities can make that happen. We have so please 
subscribe to the work here at uh, uh, Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. You'll get all the updates in terms of those shows. Um, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. David Baki, who's literally written the book on Veterans Affairs, who's going to be joining me uh, on that show, um, as well as some other guests. So um, it's going to be a great month of veteran discussions. Um, and I hope you join us for that. Um, so we are going to talk about two other issues uh, today. We're going to we're going to end the show talking about Borgs. And if you don't know what Borgs are, I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this discussion because it is just one more way for you to go. They're doing what um, <laughs> in terms of the students? But we're going to hold off on Borgs. We're going to end with Borgs. So instead, we're going to we're going to start the, the next part of the show with the conversation around DEI. Um, which is absolutely under attack um, as and uh, uh, drag shows and uh, drag performances, which are now illegal in the state of Tennessee as of this week. And uh, that means they're illegal on state property. And it got my brain going about how uh, it the way this particular anti-drag legislation is written. Um, it's clear it's going after trans people as well. It's clear it's going after free speech. It's clear there's a lot of things about it that uh, is is uh, very clear that it's not only about drag performances. There's a broader aspect of this. And I wrote this week in my in my blog um, about how uh, you know when we're looking at DEI as well as issues around LGBTQIA. Uh, support, uh, whether it be around uh, student, uh, just day-to-day -day support or things like a drag show. I mean, like I think about the colleges that I've worked at and that having a drag show on campus is a is a big deal. It's something they do with regularity as like a big event of the year and something people really look forward to. Imagine being um, at a state institution right now in Tennessee and saying, okay, can we even have this show anymore? Can we even do this program anymore? Um, and what does this mean for our students to feel seen and feel like they're part of our community? And I wanted to turn our attention uh, in the blog. I actually brought up the idea around the abortion uh, access uh, folks in our lives who are actually trying to push this. Uh, you can't just think about the the thing that happened now, you got to think two, three, four steps down the road, and they're and they're already in line to fight back and have um, access uh, solutions or at least end arounds uh, if medical. Uh, uh, pharmaceutical abortion is no longer available. I have not seen an alert go up today. So we could still find out before the end of today's show that a federal judge in, ten in Texas took that away. But when we look at this, you know, I think one of the things that I feel like is that especially in the DEI area, we feel like we're playing whack-a-mole. Like every time something comes up, that it's, okay, you need to tell us what are DEI initiatives on your campus. You need to tell us uh, what classes have a DEI or anti-racist element. You need to tell us X, Y, Z. And, and I, I think that there is a think, think about your reality and look down the road. Um, I see Shigs in the audience. I don't know if she has time today to jump up. I know she's had some time to go to her uh, legislation, uh, legislators in South Carolina um, and talk about what matters on her campus. 
uh, down there at Winthrop University. And I know that there are ways that we can uh, structure this in terms of these conversations. And one of the arguments I keep making is we have to go to, there she is. <laughs> There she is. We have to go to this idea of providing data and saying not only about what are the programs we're offering, but students who go through these programs are more likely to graduate, are more likely to X, Y, Z. You know, what does that look like? And so, hey, Shigs, what's up? You can take yourself off mute and say hi. Hi, everybody. So sorry that I couldn't jump on immediately. There's a lot happening on my campus today. Um, oh. So I need to let some people know I was coming on the call unexpectedly and I needed them to give me some space in order to do that. <laughs> so uh, happy to be a part of the discussion. And I think I just heard that we're talking about DEI and um, what's happening in the various states. And um, I will tell you that I have a, an interesting vantage point on all of it at this point. One, because I live in South Carolina. Um, two, because I have friends and colleagues in Florida mm. um, coaching someone who is in Texas. And I have a sister who is in charge of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the University of Oklahoma. And so I am getting to hear about this from all sides. And um, my, my sister and I are fairly calm about this whole discussion, mm. even in the midst of all the, the drama that is unfolding, because I think our approach to this and many people's approach to this, but we almost have to be reminded when there's so much hyperactivity around these topics, we, we have to remind ourselves of what the goal was for diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice types of initiatives on our campus. And when other people continue to focus on what they are turning into buzzwords and words that are laced with all sorts of other kinds of isms, then we have to go to the foundational level of why these these programs, policies, ways of being were put in place. And really our mission has not changed in terms of, you know, our notion of helping students to feel like they belong, helping them to connect to our institutions, helping them to find their place and space on our campuses, and to remind other people that diversity, equity, and inclusion, when done well, um, really is inclusive of every single person at our institution. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to be talking about, and you mentioned this, Laura, when I went to the state house, um, I talked about things like social mobility. Mm -hmm. um, when I talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I included conversation about our post-traditional students, about our veterans, about our first-generation students, because so much of this discussion centers around race and ethnicity. And that's, and, and the truths that we are not willing to face in America, but, but let's not confuse what diversity, equity, and inclusion is really about. It is absolutely inclusive of every single person that is walking, talking, breathing on our college campuses, including people who identify as majority, including people who reside in a more privileged space. They too have a need to be connected and to be included. And so we're, we're just asking for that seat at the table so that everyone else who would not normally be heard from at that table is able to be a part of that. I will say that those conversations that I had at the state house, first with the House Ways and Means Committee, and then later with the Senate Finance Committee, went beautifully um, because I did talk about it in its most expansive form and in a way that it would land with people. It doesn't mean that we don't still have issues. It doesn't mean that they still didn't ask for the list of diversity programming on campus, literally on the same day that they also, um, at the state house, gave Winthrop their 
fifth year of being, you know, the institution that advances the most people of color and women um, and gave us an award for it. And so, right. so it's, it's, it's this interesting world that we live in. I'll stop there since I kind of came in on maybe no, the tail end of I that mean, conversation. You have a wealth of, of lived experience and the information that you provide is far better than anything that I could throw out there. But I want to make sure that you also have a space. I think one of the questions that I have for you right now, and Beth or, or Corey might have a follow-up as well, is that a question I have is, do you ever have a moment, maybe when you're talking with either the people that you're mentoring, talking to your sister, or maybe talking to legislators, that you say something and that kind of clicks? Um, maybe one of your mentees says, you know what, I said this and it finally clicked with somebody about how important mm -hmm. this is. Um, maybe your sister has brought it up because of the work she does in Oklahoma, or maybe you yourself has said something to a legislator and they finally went, oh, you made me think mm -hmm. about it differently. Um, mm -hmm. That's a question I have, because I think sometimes people, as you said, like there's this frenetic pace of this panic, right? And what do we say and what do we do, you know, and what does that actually look like? And they are like, I don't even know what to say to make people stop and listen. So what do you, mm -hmm. is there something that you've heard that you say that will make someone stop and listen? Well, and, and this is where I'll borrow from my sister and maybe give you her phone number so you can pull her in for some of these conversations. Uh, she, she is in Oklahoma and her title is Vice President for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion um, for the Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma system, if you will. So she's over all three institutions and is often invited to speak before um, their state legislature. And what I love about her is that in addition to whatever information she's brought, been asked to share with this group, that she also will ask them questions. Um, and so her questions center around, you know, tell me what your definition is of critical race theory. Tell me what your definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion is. And often they can't answer that question and it kind of stumps them. Um, or they give a definition that has no bearing on what the actual definition of those words are. And then she will highlight for them and point out to them um, that, again, when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that many of the programs, services, initiatives that we put in place serve those who are economically disadvantaged, serve people like our veterans, serve people like our, you know, our non-traditional or post-traditional students, whichever language you yeah. use on your campus, and that in the process of trying to avoid certain spaces that were in fact making it more difficult for the very populations that are our primary populations on our campus to do life on the campus and to have access to the resources, services, and supports that they need to be successful. And that has a tendency to put a pause into the room because again, she's giving them an alternative way to think about and to enter into this conversation that goes so far beyond this notion of race and ethnicity. And again, as a woman, sitting here as a black woman, it's still important to me that that's a part of that conversation. So I'm not saying that, suggesting that we should avoid that. Right. Um, but when you're trying to talk about things like workforce development and social mobility and, or thinking about, you know, the veterans who come to us who have disabilities or accessibility concerns or the students in general, who come to our campuses right. with accessibility concerns. Let's talk then, about what, you know, everything that falls under that umbrella. Everything. Let's expand yeah. that definition. And so so that has paid huge dividends for her um, yeah. when she has entered into those spaces. And, and really, I think the piece that's been really important for her, too, is to really have the full 
support of her institution um, and to have the respect of the legislators. And what her president said to her recently is, um, and mine has said to me more recently too, is you all have a way of sort of calling a spade a spade and naming what needs to be named, but you do so in a way that is respectful and in a way that people can see themselves inside that narrative so that it, it, even when they don't want it to, it expands their world. You're using their world that inclusive lens. You're using that Absolutely. inclusive messaging to make sure that people are like, you know, they turn on the volume and they say, mm-hmm. okay, now I understand this a little bit more. Um, and that's the reason why you are, you are who you are, Sheila. That's why you are who you are. Um, and so <laughs> one of the, the other things that I want to then uh, give Corey or, or uh, Beth an answer, a, a chance to ask any follow-up questions. One thing I'm wondering is, as I noted in my blog and what I noted in in the lead up here, is that in the case of, say, abortion, some of the abortion rights folks said, look, we know that Roe's going down and we've got to look two, three, four steps down the road to be ready for what's next. And so one of my arguments as far as uh, protecting uh, our LGBTQ communities and our DEI initiatives, we need to start to think two, three, four steps down the road and act on the offensive rather than on the defensive. Um, and is there something from your communication with folks or even what's kind of brewing up in your brain is to say my next, the next thing that I worry about or that we need to position ourselves for is to protect or to push push away from is, is what is, I mean, is there something that you're, you're concerned about that say, if they, if they go in this direction, we have to change our game plan. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, in that way, I'm a little bit more on the periphery of it. I will say that, that there have been a number of discussions about how do we, you know, there's a big discussion about funding right now and where it's coming from. And, for those institutions that are more beautifully resourced, um, they're thinking about alternative, right? I mean, the University of Oklahoma is not the same as Winthrop University where I am right now. And so they have deeper pockets. And so what they are able to do is they're pulling from budgets and funds that um, the state has no ownership yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you can't touch my um, some of my auxiliary funds. You can't touch my foundation accounts. And so they've been very strategic about how they're managing those resources. Yeah. And then at, at an institution like mine, when you ask the question of, you know, give us your listing of the number of positions, the number of FTEs and the amount of money that's being spent on DEI, where there's literally nobody at this point at our institution that is exclusively 100% DEI. We're a small campus. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have multiple people who have a portion. Right, exactly. You you have a portion of our jobs that is dedicated to it. And literally, the way our job descriptions are written, I can say this person, you know, 15% of their job is DEI. And this person, you know, 20% of their job is DEI. But really, they have these all, all these other functions that they do, too. And so um, and, and, and that helps people to better understand. Now, there are some people in the state, um, in this state that are in particular that are in danger, because there are some colleges that have whole units that have, right. you know, five or six people. And this is the work that they do on a regular basis. And so, again, the discussions that I've heard in that space is you need to get crystal clear about how you program across the board and comprehensively and be able to point to 
how you touch every single population in a variety of different ways. Um, and, and so for people who have not been operationalizing the DEI SJ agenda in a much more comprehensive way, because sometimes we do have a leaning, um, then it behooves them to really recalibrate so that they make sure that they're doing it in its broadest and deepest form, yeah. uh, because it's hard to take issue with something that I'm, I'm receiving benefit from or that I'm receiving service yeah. from. And, and I, I want to highlight something you said earlier um, as a tactic that has come up several times uh, on this show. Um, and even when I've had uh, one of the other think tank members, Dr. Gage Payne, come in, because when she was the vice president for student affairs at the University of Texas, she had to deal with this years ago. It's like, I won't put money from the state into certain programs because I want to protect how these things happen. So whether it be coming from auxiliary or coming from a grant or coming from wherever, we're going to be very clear about, about this. And the embedding of certain services and making sure that people have this kind of broad, like, look, we all own this. This isn't about one office. It mm -hmm. allows for a certain amount of protection, which is which is a good uh, leadership tactic uh, for our for our folks uh, in those roles. Corey or Beth, do you have any follow up for um, for uh, Shigs before we get on to Borgs, which I know that Shigs will be very excited to talk about Borging. Um, <laughs> so there you go. I just I think this is a slightly off to one side, but. I thought it was so interesting when I saw the piece you wrote, Laura, about how people in the you know, abortion rights area have, were thinking ahead of, you know, Roe, we knew Roe was frankly not even that great on its face and that it wasn't going to last, right, right? right? But I think the other thing that's come up recently, and I, and I don't, I don't know if I can articulate exactly how this would translate to talking about DEI initiatives, critical race theory, the, the really frankly, terrifying um, legislation that's being proposed everywhere around this country to try to basically ruin the lives of trans people, um, all of the institutional racism, like all of it. I don't know. But a thing that happened this week, come on this journey with me to a niche, uh, like weird um, popular culture moment. Earlier this week, uh, I don't know if you all remember a little TV show that used to be on TLC that was called 19 Kids and Counting. Oh, yes. Oh, uh -huh. oh we're going to talk about the Duggars. We're, we're going to talk, talk about the Duggars. For a yes, we're going to talk so about sorry. the Duggars. Yes. yes, go there. Go so there. They, so they have been in, not in the news quite as much because the show got canceled because hmm. the oldest son is in prison for because he's a rapist. Bad things. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the other adult children in the family still like operate on social media they have like mm -hmm. youtube channels or instagram accounts where they do some yeah. i don't know They're light influencing or, i guess yeah, yeah. yes and one of them uh posted a youtube video the other day on the family channel seeming to announce in the beginning of the video a pregnancy but then by the end saying that the pregnancy had been lost and included in her description that she had needed a dnc procedure for a missed miscarriage this started an absolute firestorm on social media because people were pointing out like, hey, your family has publicly talked about abortion as a Holocaust, which mm -hmm. yikes right there for yeah. other reasons. Your family is virulently anti-abortion, but the procedure you got to have to preserve your health 
is an abortion. Is something that, you know, like your laws in certain states are trying to outlaw or that like the laws in certain states, even if the letter of the law doesn't say a person can have a DNC after a missed miscarriage, it's wonky enough that doctors, I actually just heard a thing on NPR this morning, a doctor in Texas was like, I'm not sure I can even talk to you about this. And even though the law doesn't really say that, medical providers are understandably nervous about what they can and can't do, et cetera. So this this was all over the place earlier this week. And I saw a very interesting thread on Twitter by a woman by the name of Imani Gandhi, who is an attorney who co-hosts a, um, a show called uh, <laughs> Boom Lawyered with, <laughs> and also writes for Rewire News Group, which they do a lot of great journalism in the area of, of abortion rights. And she was basically like, hey, we don't have to be nice to the Duggar family to win hearts and minds on this issue. We have the hearts and minds. The majority of people in this country believe there should be safe access to abortion. We need court reform. We need election reform. Like we need to stop trying to spend all this time thinking we're going to go to these people that hate our guts and don't agree with us and be like, if I tell you one more sad story. Mm-hmm you'll this this is what's gonna do it and you're gonna come over to my side and you're gonna believe what i believe they won't we need to reform the institutions that are making it so we have this ridiculous conservative majority on the supreme court that shouldn't be there sorry wow i'm getting very political today sorry but i yeah so like i and it stinks like what an awful way to feel right that like you could bear your soul you could say you know if you are a person who has had an abortion, if you're a person of color who deals with micro microaggressions, if you, all these things, you could, a trans person who's trying to say like, I'm just trying to live my life. I don't actually know why you are so obsessed with my genitals. I just want to use a public restroom and I'm just going to get in and get out. Like who cares? That's not the point. Right. And it should be like, we should be able to say like, Hey, I, I need to live too. I'm a human. I should be able to live and like, enjoy my life. And have the basic things that everyone else gets, like, or we should be getting, like, healthcare and food and a safe place to live. But no, it's not convincing people. And so, I don't know, it just, it was so interesting to me to read that because it was, it really crystallized something for me of, like, oh, it can feel good sometimes to tell your story, certainly. Um, But I don't know that it's going to bring around people who really want to do the thing they want to do to be cruel frankly and to and to maintain their own position within the point yeah cruelty is the point and also like we enjoy a lot those of us who are very privileged enjoy our privilege and don't really want to give it up and that's not easy it's not easy to it's not easy for people to reconcile with that and to admit like, oh, wait, like this institution, this government, this way that these things run, that's really unfair to a lot of people actually benefits me a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's not even necessarily that you would have to give up that much, but people really see it that way. I think it's yep. kind of like we were saying before, like Eli Lilly is going to give everyone the $35 insulin. Isn't that great? Right? Like a lot of things could be that way, exactly. but I think the people in, who have a lot of privilege are really just like, no, 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 it's pie. And if I give more pie to the black people or more pie to the women, then I'm going to get less pie. And it's, it's, I don't know how we fix that. I don't know if we do. Well, and that part is, I have this to say now that you've talked about pie, I love pie. And if they started handing me pie, all the white dudes are going to get no pie because I love my pie. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. 
<laughs> I'm going to say it. I love my pie. I love a good fruit pie. I'm not a big fan of the, like, the, the pumpkin. I, I, no, I like pumpkin pie. I like that. But not like a, a pudding pie. That's not it for me. But there you go. All right. So now we've had our pie discussion. And now we have answered no questions. And we have just gotten people all riled up. Okay. We are going to talk about Borgs for the last few minutes. Um, and uh, Corey, do you know what a Borg is? Are you there? Corey's tuned out. Yeah, I'm trying to like click on the little mute button. I uh, <laughs> The description from the article you were like sent Tell along was, was confusing. <laughs> it, it looks as though someone gets a gallon jug of water. They mm -hmm. pour some out, add whatever alcohol du jour they want, maybe add some electrolytes, maybe some Pedialyte, maybe nothing. And then they just drink, try to drink the whole thing, drink as much as they want. Yep. Um, the article was confusing, so I'm still okay. figuring it out. So there you go. So a Borg, which stands for, and it's not, as my husband and I were talking the other night, it's not Bjornborg. It's not uh, the Borg, like from Star Trek. I was it thinking is Star Trek. just Borg, okay, Borging. Um, Borg stands for Blackout Rage Gallon, okay? And so it's a Blackout Rage Gallon, and it's all over TikTok. And I will say most of the videos on TikTok are white people. So I'm going to say this right now is that there's not a lot of black Twitter out there doing this Blackout Rage Drunk bullshit. Um, so let's, like, big big mad props to the blonde girls. Um, anyway, so uh, you've got this situation and they're walking around with a with this gallon jug, and they're and the thing you see on on TikTok is that there's different um, recipes. So they take out some water, and some people have said one of the things you need to do with the water is don't throw the water out, um, put it aside because you're going to need that water later when you do go to sleep because it helps you not be so parched when you wake up. Okay, um, and so. You take uh, uh, in the gallon jug, you then fill it up with uh, whatever your clear li liquor of choice is. Um, and then you add, as Corey said, maybe some electrolytes, maybe some combination. I saw one video where they actually poured a can of that like alcoholic seltzer in it too. Like it's a whole big kind of craziness. Um, Beth, as we know, for those of you who have been listening to the show before, has a master's in public health and has a specialty in terms of alcohol. Um, so let's talk about this, Beth. When you saw Borging, um, what was your first impression of this? Where did you go with this? This is, and I, of course, had a flashback to Four Loco back in the day when that was the big thing to drink. And, you know, and I'm not going to do my six mofo story. We'll talk about that later offline. But, uh, Beth, what, <laughs> Beth. What's happening? So <laughs> first and foremost, I was behind the times because I, I recently spent four years at a very small institution where not that there was no partying, but the partying on that campus was a little out of the mainstream. And now I'm at a women's college okay. and the women know how to drink too. But like, I haven't been on campuses that have quite the party scene okay. that maybe some of Alcohol your big state schools culture. do or whatever, yes. right? And so when I heard about it, the first thing I did do was say to my husband, who is not in higher ed, but I was like, what do you know about the Borg? And he immediately was like, resistance is futile. And I was like, no, not Star Trek. That, but then I went to my very best friend from graduate school, from my public health program, who works at a college that, let's say their, their party scene's a little more lively. Yes. And she said, oh, girl, 
I made an educational display out of gallon jugs the other day and sent me photos of it. So like okay. on some campuses, this is very <laughs> um, I think it's a half gallon of liquor. Yes, it is right? a half gallon <laughs> of liquor. It is not a small amount of liquor. And it this has is a half gallon. Out in the name. So like, I just, I, okay. I did read one piece that was like, there's a little bit of harm reduction in this. And like, technically speaking, yes. It's great that you have your own vessel, right? You're not drinking from like a shared uh, a garbage can full of jungle juice. So that's a, a tick in the plus column. You your can. Own vessel. Yeah, you have your own thing. No one can mess with it. You, um, you can make it taste the way you want. One article I read did point out like you can make it non-alcoholic and no one will be any the wiser, which is also true. But you can do that with many non-gallon sized like when i was pregnant i walked around drinking a bunch of seltzer water with lime in it at functions early on and people did not know it wasn't a gin and tonic you can do that with a lot of drinks that's right i just am very stuck on the fact that it is a whole gallon and that half of it is still liquor yeah that's a lot even if and i think i think god i'm gonna i'm about to sound a hundred years old what I gather is that the kids are doing this at like a daytime thing, right? Yeah. This is like we bring our we bring like our board to yeah, like yeah. a music festival or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like technically speaking, you could be drinking that over several hours. It might kind of work out to be okay. It just feels like a thing to me that um there's still a lot of room for people to really overconsume. Yes. with such yes. a large amount of liquid. And that's the point hand. of it. Like, it's literally yes. the point. Like, if you watch the videos, the students talk about, all right, you're going out because you're going to the football game, or you're going to the party, or you're going to the, the music festival. And by the way, it's March. So guess what's coming up in April? Spring weekend, which is like literally my least favorite thing. My least favorite thing was always spring weekend because it was like, I am never going to be home for three days. I am going to be walking this campus until my feet fall off because all I'm doing is playing like you, you put that down. You put that down. Oh my God. Okay, here we go. Da, 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 da. And every opportunity for harm reduction come from everything from we're going to only hand out certain cups and you're going to be able to drink in certain areas. So at least we can keep an eye on things. But it, it was always just, you know, they were three steps ahead. Talk about three steps ahead. The students were always three steps ahead. Um, mm -hmm. And this is one of those things where as we're anticipating the fact that um, spring weekends are coming up, the, the campuses are getting warmer, um, students are going to head out with their Borgs in hand. Um, if you, you know, I'd love to hear from any of you. I know, Corey, you do conduct work. Sheila, you're looking at all of it. Uh, Beth, as far as, you know, if you were to partner with other offices on your campus, knowing your campus cultures, knowing what's going on, what are some things you're anticipating about maybe addressing this national phenomenon um, that everyone's learning from one another? This isn't just things that, you know, back in the old days when, you know, you would just be able to talk to your neighbor in the residence hall and they would tell you something. You're hearing about this on your phone from a campus far across the country. And you're like, hey, how come we should try this? And this is what they're doing. They're literally saying, we should try this. They're doing it at this school. Or 
you know, I'm not going to let the university of uh, blah, blah, blah out Borg us. We're going to show them how we can Borg the hell out of this thing. And they're going to be able to go off there and, and do some competition. So um, Corey, Sheila, what are your thoughts on how are you going to maybe think about how you're going to address this on your own campuses? And we'll take Beth off uh, as the last point on this. So Corey, then Sheila. Oh, Corey's just sent me a text that the app froze. So I'm going to go to, to Sheila and then to uh, and then to Beth. Yeah, so we've just started to have discussions about this. And I will say on our campus, we have two camps going on this thing. I was like, what in the heck is this? Why would, I'm sorry, help me understand that? Isn't that the worst when you're just like, okay, I need you to explain something to the old lady. I need you to tell me what what? this is. (laughs) I don't even claim that old lady thing because I'm pretty current. But, and I understand what you just said. My next statement was make it make sense. Like what, what, what what is happening here? It is still a half gallon of alcohol. But somebody posited to me in a conversation that, well, gosh, it's a great harm reduction tool because they're controlling their own drinks. To that, I would say, yes, and there is still a lot of alcohol Mm. and it's still encouraging drinking. Um, It is still problematic in so many ways. Uh, So I am still concerned about that. And so that is currently where we sit with the dialogue on our campus. I've not had a chance yet. Really, and, and I won't name who that other person was because, again, they're entitled to their own opinion. And I will own that I'm being a little judgy right now in terms of my thinking around this. I haven't done some deep dive into the articles or any of that yet, but my initial reaction was, but it is again, make it make sense. And, and because drinking culture is so pervasive on college campuses to endorse anything. Mm-hmm. That that is in that lane for me is problematic um, because I'd much rather us play up the discussions around wellness um, and, you know, being responsible and peer influence and, you know, social responsibility and why it's not necessary to get trashed yeah. Yeah. or even semi-trashed in order to have a good time. Personally, I like to remember my good time the next day. And I'd like to have my good time not laced with alcohol or laced with, you know, vomiting Mm -hmm. um, or passing out or not knowing how I, you you know what I mean? And so I just, so I think (laughs) while I understood where that person was coming from, I respectfully disagreed and indicated that I do need some more education around it. But I think that we're, we're, and maybe we've always been in a critical moment when it comes to, you know, how we how we train students or inform them or educate them around these issues. But there's something that I'm noticing in today's student population, social, socially, they are already at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of people who don't know how to put boundaries or tell yeah. people, no, I don't want you to be in my face or no, I don't want to have a conversation with you or no. You you make me uncomfortable, or no, you're not invited into my room. And then to add things like borging on top of it, it just feels like a recipe for a disaster. And and probably, you know, I'm gonna put on the alcohol snob face. It probably tastes like crap. Um, Probably. So, (laughs) 
Like it's not going to taste good. Um, Corey has sent me a text. Borgs also remind me of when the Heineken mini keg was introduced and people were all flustered because students could bring their common source with them. I'm like, that's true. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. So thank you, Corey, for making me recall back to the Heineken <laughs> mini keg. You know what? I think that that if I ever write my my uh, autobiography, I'm going to have each chapter be whatever is the current way to get drunk. And it's just going to be kind of walk our way through and move our way through this this uh, this this phenomenon of of getting ourselves completely faced. Um, that'll be the name of the book. The phenomenon of faced. OK, so uh, Beth, you have the last That's word so on this before we. <laughs> before we log out of this. So Beth, go ahead. I would definitely read that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Sheila hit it all, I think. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I think that it there needs to be education about harm reduction and about safer ways to drink because students will decide to do that. But I do agree also, there needs to be more conversation with students and more assisting them with making connections and with communicating Yep. Because I know I'm kind of was joking, but also being serious before about like, oh, one thing you could do is have it not be alcohol and trick people. But like, and and that's legit. There are going to be situations where people will want to do that. But also like, wouldn't it be great if you had a friend group where it was fine if you weren't carrying around a gallon <laughs> full of liquor? Like what? Exactly. And so I, yes, exactly. And I do think that's hard. I think it's harder than we want to give students credit for because I think even as adults out of college you can be out with a group and say oh one was enough for me or I'm not drinking tonight or I don't drink and there are still people who don't respond appropriately to that which the appropriate way to respond would be great can I get you <laughs> what can I get you or like okay great you know like there are definitely people who don't conduct themselves well in that environment but I think it it's like any good um public health intervention, it can't just be, well, we're going to tell you not to do this, or we're going to tell you, uh, this is bad, but at least you're drinking out of your own container. Like there, there's gotta be multiple conversations about it. And I think that, um, you know, if you think about what harm reduction really is, sometimes it is not what we would love for it to be right. Sometimes it literally is a person who is going to continue using a substance that could be deadly to them but we're going to help them do that in a safer way. Mm. Do we really want them to continue? We don't, but they have free will and they have autonomy. And so, um, yeah, sometimes we're going to still see them out there with the Borgs, but <laughs> I think it's, I think trying to continue education about, Hey, yeah, it's natural. Like you're going to want to party. You're going to want to hang out with friends. You can do it without alcohol or you can do mm. it with less and actually doing it with less. There's a, there's a point of diminishing returns with alcohol where, you're having fun and then it goes off a cliff and it's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do you maintain that spot if you want to drink at all? Absolutely. Um, well, you're always also wise. I am a blessed person because I know people smarter than me. So thank you all for being here. Thank you for being part of the show. I want to remind folks that coming up over the next uh, few weeks, we have a series of shows on Veterans Affairs. Uh, so please uh, make sure you are subscribed to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe right here and you're following me on Fireside. Um, you can uh, re-watch right here on Fireside, the replay, or you can find Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. Uh, thank you all for being here. And 
go on out there and learn something. Have a great day, everybody.